Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Hello, and happy Monday to all of you. Glad you are here and to join me for this live stream. I'm excited to bring you this very practical teaching today in response to a fair number of uh, letters, inquiries, DMs that I get asking my opinion about what to look for in a church or how to know when it's time to change churches. Our family's been going through our own church transition now for the last three years and uh, I'm not, I'm not going to lie, it's been challenging. <laughs> I think it's been challenging for all of us in different ways as we kind of try to navigate the waters of feeling church homeless since we left our church of decades, kind of during the pandemic. And we have visited all kinds of churches since then in search of a better situation. I understand it can be really tough out there really, really tough. And this has led me to thinking a lot about what to look for in a church. So I thought I'd put together a teaching about what to look for in a biblically faithful church and how to know maybe when it's time to start to transition to a better situation. Again, this is going to be a very practical teaching through a lot, with a very a lot of specific ideas uh, not a lot of technical theology, but more on the practical side. And it's going to build on a conversation that Monique and I had a couple of weeks ago on our All the Things podcast. We talked to our pastor, Brett Kunkel, about house churches, but he gave a lot of just awesome information in general about what is a church and structuring and things to think about. So this teaching will kind of be a great supplement to that conversation. So maybe after you watch this, you want to catch a replay of that. Uh, how do I know when it's time to start a house church? Uh, you can check it out on the, all the things YouTube channel, and uh, it'll be a good companion to this. With that, let's get into it. The first thing I want to say is in your church hunt and all of that is your first priority is look into how you can work to stay. That is, you know, always a good thing to think about first, because as you know, there is no perfect church. And if there were a perfect church and you were to join it, you being a redeemed sinner would immediately upon entrance bring sin into the church, at which point it would be highly imperfect. And obviously I'm I'm kidding here, but hopefully it makes the point clear that the church is full of sinners. So there will always be some kind of struggle that is happening. And so we don't want to fall into the pattern of constantly church hopping. That's not a sign of spiritual health or maturity. So leaving a church ought to be a serious decision it should be a hard decision. It should be a warranted decision, not something that we just kind of do on a whim or as a result of a personal preference. So 
work to stay if you can, work to have the hard conversations. Leading should be a, a process filled with clear communication with leaders and the areas where you have differences. It should involve possibly several clarifying conversations, clarifying questions with the leadership. If you can work toward reconciliation, work toward maintaining sound and healthy relationships as much as possible. Leaving a church should feel kind of like a loss. And I can tell you from experience, it can take years and a lot of persistence to recover from. So when you can work to stay, but when it's time to go, make sure that you're leaving over the correct issues. And that kind of brings me to some of the things I want to share today to give you some things to think about as you are searching for a new church. So in this first part of the teaching, I want to talk about five potential red flags. Uh, maybe if you don't feel comfortable right off the bat calling them red flags, maybe we'll call them yellow flags, things to look into things to um, consider as you are looking for another church. So let's get into that. Number one, um, this is a great question to ask yourself is, does the church have a robust statement of faith? Because I think it is a huge red flag, yellow flag, worth looking into. If you go on the church website, one of the first things you can do is click on their about page and read through their statement of faith. Read it carefully. Um, if it's very brief, that's a bad sign. Uh, it could be possibly be worth investigating that the church leadership might not take theology very seriously. If the statement of faith is not very thorough and it's very general and brief. That often makes me think, hmm, I wonder what level this church is going to engage in in guarding sound doctrine. Uh, when we start off on kind of a just minimalist foot, uh, it makes me wonder what else is, is coming, when the other shoe is going to fall. So um, look for a church that's transparent about the specifics Look for whether they believe the Bible is the error-free word of God. This is sometimes called inerrancy. More than just we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, do we also believe that the Bible is inerrant? That's a big one. Um, ideally, the church these days, I would be looking for a position about gender and marriage, a definition of marriage. And they have it like publicly available on their website. Even better if they clarify their position on race or justice or social justice. And that these terms have specific and clear definitions. They're not just broad, vague statements that could be interpreted a bunch of different kinds of ways, okay? So that's the first thing you wanna look for is a clear statement of faith, not a vague statement of faith, okay? Number two, 
The second big question to ask yourself to see if maybe there's a red flag is, are the lyrics of the worship music doctrinally sound? Now, many churches these days have a, a live stream their services. Some of them live stream their worship times. So maybe you might be able to get a feel for their hymnody, their, their song selection that they use. Now, in my opinion, the style of the music is secondary to the lyrics of the songs. I know some people have some pretty strong feelings even about who the publishers are on the songs. I don't have as strong of feelings about that issue. I know some people do. Uh, they, they want to avoid certain publishers. I just really kind of look at the lyrics. I look at, you know, what is the doctrinal stability and fidelity here of these lyrics? And something I just kind of wanted to raise and, and to float for you is noticing the pattern of the Psalms. If you notice the Psalms, they often recount the works of God in salvation. They'll talk about the attributes of God. For example, if you were to read through Psalm 145, uh, that's a great example of a Psalm where um, even when the psalmist, the psalmist is, is reflecting on the nature of God, he's doing it in an objective way. He's doing it to reflect on who God is. And it's very specific, you know, what are his righteous deeds and what are the actions that he has done? So it's not just talking about the psalmist's feelings about something. It's talking about the objective truth of who God is and the things that he has done. And even when the Psalms do recount a personal struggle, they almost always eventually turn the focus back to recounting the objective acts of God in salvation history and his attributes. So I think that, it, you know, you would do good to, to look through the Psalms. And if you're reflecting on a theology of worship and what worship content you want to look for in worship lyrics as you're looking for a church, start to notice those patterns of how God is um, attuning his people to worship him. Now, in contrast, some of the modern worship songs do tend to focus more on recounting an individual's personal experiences and feelings about God. And, um, you know, that's where you can kind of do a compare and contrast between the Psalms and their themes and the songs that you're hearing in the worship services, you know, do the, do, do the songs that you're the, the prospective church is singing about, are they talking about themes like the cross, salvation, the blood, the Trinity, like, do they have theologically robust content to the lyrics or is it mostly focused on the self and has a lot of I statements in it? So those are some things to consider when it comes to worship. Number three, the third area that I want to encourage you to think about and look for as a potential red flag when you're looking for a church is, does the pastor tend to teach topically or expositionally when they are teaching through the Bible? Now, again, here's where a church's website can be very helpful. 
before you even step into a church. You can watch some of the sermons online, and this will potentially save you a lot of time. Um, now, I know that it is very common to look for pastors who preach sermons that are funny or have good storytelling or cool props, and that this is all very common these days. But I'm going to take the unpopular route here and suggest something better to look for, and that is biblical fidelity. Uh, one way to detect biblically faithful messages is to look for pastors who teach through the Bible in context. This means that they go slowly through the Bible, verse by verse sometimes. They take the time to give the historical and cultural context. They even take the time to read the whole passage in context. Okay, they might even read a whole chapter, all right? So I, I know that this is not the trend these days. The vast majority of evangelical churches, especially larger and mega churches, they tend to mostly teach through the Bible topically. Um, maybe they only highlight one or two verses in a sermon. And this can be a tip-off to more shallow teaching. Not always, but generally I, I have found this to almost always be true. Um, and I strongly advise against a steady diet of topical preaching. I don't really have time to develop all of that in this um, in this teaching, but I do have a teaching on my channel where I share some thoughts about the pitfalls of ingesting a steady diet of topical preaching. Uh, and I'll try to remember to put a link to that in the description here, but it's this is a concern that I have because we're getting inundated with a lot of stories of deconstruction. And my theory is that a steady diet of topical preaching lays the groundwork for deconstruction later because people are not taught how to interpret the Bible in context. And so they think they understand what the Bible teaches, but they actually really don't because they have, they have not read the verses in context. So the important thing to detect in a prospective church is this, does the teaching from the church authentically flow from the core meaning of the passage? And even your kids can detect this. When my kids were very young, we would sit at lunch after church and I would ask, you know, does this application really follow from the biblical text? If even your kids can tell that these, these there's a disconnect between the application and the text, that's a red flag. Because how your pastor models for you, um, how he interprets the Bible will become what you ingest and it will become how you interpret the Bible. And this will in turn in influence and impact how you interpret your, how you teach your children to interpret the Bible. So you want to choose very carefully. Number four, the fourth potential red flag when you're looking at a church is does the church use the orange curriculum? 
or discipling the kids. Now, Orange makes this very easy to figure out. All you have to do is get your phone and download the Parent Q app, C-U-E, Parent Q by Orange. And you can just type in your zip code and it will tell you all the churches in your area that use the Orange curriculum. So it's very easy to find out. Now, if you're new to my channel, you might be a little confused about why I see the Orange curriculum as a potential red flag, yellow flag situation. I don't have time to go into all those reasons here, but I have an entire playlist on my YouTube channel detailing with screen caps and videos and all kinds of receipts my concerns about the Orange curriculum. So I want to encourage you to check that out and share it with your pastor and your Kidman pastor for their consideration. But my bottom line concern with Orange is that it doesn't teach the Bible in context. It doesn't train children on the actual meaning of the Bible. It reduces the Bible down to principles for living and virtue. And that is not the main uh, message of the Bible. Now, this is an opinion. I encourage you to do your own research, make up your own mind, but just putting it out there, that's my opinion, that's my take on a potential red flag. Number five, does the church have a strong emphasis on educating people in the faith? Now, here's, here's how you can kind of detect where the church is at on this issue. If you go on their website and you don't see any classes in the faith, like there's no classes on how to dig deeper into your faith or on theology, basic theology or basic apologetics or anything of that nature, that's probably going to be a tip off that education is not a priority for that church. And what I'm not talking about is a bunch of six week small group studies. That's not going to be deep enough to equip you to be able to address the cultural concerns that your kids are going to bring into the home. Like you've, you've got to have some more meat on the bones than that. So does the church have some structured classes to learn about the deeper things of the faith, not just merely small groups on parenting tips? Not to say those things don't have their place. Six-week studies, classes on parenting tips for managing social media, that's great. Those things have their place. But is there also a place where you as a parent can get discipled so that you can get equipped to disciple your own kids better? Something as maybe reading a book or listening to some lectures or having a place for discussion about theological ideas. That's what you're going to want to look for. Kind of a related tip-off can be, does your church have a library? Uh, and this was first put on my radar by one of my old mentors, Dr. J.P. Moreland. His vision of a local church is people should practically be like stumbling over books <laughs> as they're coming into the church. You know, like, uh, is there a cart out in the lobby that has books that reminds you every week of, oh yeah, the church has a library and is the library resourcing people in theology and, and theology for kids and, and important topics that Christians should be conversant on. 
a church library ministry is so important, especially in this day and age. Um, we want to have somebody who can resource other people on the deeper things of the faith. Okay, let's say you visited a church a few times. It seems promising, doesn't have any immediate red or yellow flags. Well, then what? Okay, then what? I would suggest ask the meeting, ask the pastor for a meeting. Now, if the pastor won't give you a meeting, that might be a yellow flag, possibly a red flag in and of itself for reasons that I'm going to really go into in the final third of this teaching. But if, if they're not willing to have a meeting with you at the front end of the relationship, when they're first getting to know you and trying to uh, um, engage in hospitality, there is a, a likelihood. I think it's something to consider about whether or not they will be there for you in a situation like need, when you need a hospital visit, when you need someone to come pray with you in a crisis situation with your family. Um, asking the pastor for a meeting is, I think, a, a vital step in going deeper with whether or not you want to really invest in a church. Because obviously, when you're joining a church, you're not just attending there. You're you're wanting to serve. You're wanting to give and tithe toward that church. So you need to know that that, that is a group of believers that you want to align with because you feel like that they are biblically faithful in how they are trying to live out our Christian beliefs in the real world. So if you've kind of stepped through these major kind of five things, I would suggest try to get a meeting with the pastor. And so I want to give you some ideas. I'm going to give you four areas, four things to ask the pastor about. Number one is what is your philosophy of ministry when it comes to the education of children in the faith? I think this is a very important issue. And I've got a number of follow-up questions here that go along with that. What is your philosophy of ministry when it comes to the education of children in the faith? Do you see yourselves? Do you see the youth pastors, does the Kidman pastor see themselves as partnering with parents or as the primary educator? And then ask for specifics. What does partnering with parents look like specifically? Okay, let me explain why this is important. I was in a meeting once with somebody who was in ministry with my kids and this person was the leader and they were, we were at a parent meeting and they said, we see ourselves as partners with parents. So great, that sounds great. So I asked the question, what does partnering with parents mean to you? What does that look like? Because later in the conversation, this leader, this, we'll call this person a youth leader, um, said that if our children disclose something to, to the youth leaders, they would be assured of confidentiality. And I'm like, 
okay, I can see some warrant for that, but what exactly does it mean to partner with parents? What is the limits of that confidentiality? Like, uh, I know you're a mandate, probably a mandated reporter by the state of California, but what are the other parameters of that boundary of confidentiality? Like if my kid discloses to them, to their, their youth leader, they're struggling with drugs or that they took drugs, are, are they going to, is that youth leader going to not disclose that to me as the parent? Like what does partnering with parents really look like in the nitty gritty of it? Okay. That's what you want to know. You want to ask those kinds of highly specific questions. What does the church do to equip parents to disciple their kids? Because if we're co-partnering together, which you might notice my shirt says, I don't co-parent with the government. I think I even co-parent, I don't think I even co-parent with my church. I, to me, a church is a supplement to the discipleship that I provide to my child. They provide support in terms of consistent worldview messaging and teaching, but I don't expect the church to be the primary disciplers of, of my kids. So what's the church going to do to help equip me as the parent to be able to disciple my child. See, these are the kinds of questions that parents, I think, need to ask when we're visiting a church to think about like, okay, what kind of partnership are we building here? So just because I say the nice, pretty words of partnering with parents, you're going to have to drill down on that a little bit more. Okay, number two, the second area to ask your pastor or prospective pastor about is, how did the church handle the social unrest of 2020? Okay, this is a very important question. And, and here's why, is that I'm looking at this as a, as a test case situation. Okay, this is a test case to let you know something about in the future, how they might ha handle another crisis. Okay, so you're trying to get a snapshot of what that would look like. So here's some related questions you could ask. How did the church handle the social unrest of 2020? What sermons were preached? Were there any special events? Did anything change in terms of the church's culture or practices? What have you learned since then? Have you changed your mind about anything since then? What voices would you say have been the most important in shaping your thoughts about race and justice? Here, you're just trying to get a snapshot of how does this pastoral leadership team react under pressure? When the culture gets crazy, how do they lead and disciple their people? So you're asking for a historical account because history is generally the best predictor of the future and what they will do at the next big crisis, okay? But you also want to allow room for them to have changed their mind. We're, we're getting calls here at the ministry of people, parent, uh, pastors and schools that are like, hey, we, we implemented DEI, diversity. We put a diversity team together at our church. We put a diversity, installed a diversity director at our school. And now 
they're rethinking that. So allow them to have made a mistake or to rethink or to change their mind. You want to allow some space for that, but you know, ask them, what did they learn from that? All right. And what voices have shaped your thoughts about these issues? I think that'll be very revelatory for you. Okay. Number three, the third area to ask your potential pastor about is what is the church's policy about LGBT people who attend the church? So you want to ask some questions like, can they become members? Can they serve in ministry? If so, in what capacity? Because depending on the where the church falls in how they think about these issues, there are many evangelical churches who allow people who identify and practice alternative lifestyles as a kind of a, a method of being, I don't know, extending the gospel or being friendly toward people who are not yet uh, true Christians. Um, they'll allow them to serve in some ministry capacities. Maybe they'll let them serve in the coffee ministry or something that they have deemed as being not leadership. Okay. So you want to inquire about this. How do they handle these things? How do they talk about them? How do they, um, how do they handle hiring, uh, with these issues? How do they handle people who want to join the church? How do they handle ministry situations? All of that. Number four, is there a formal church discipline process? Now, this might seem like a weird question to you, but I'm going to tell you in a few minutes why this is going to be really important. Um, you want to ask upfront the prospective pastor about how they handle church discipline. How does it work? Try to give the, have them give you some specifics. They, they don't, they could keep all their examples anonymous. They're not trying to get in anybody's business or anything like that. But ask them, you know, what are the, the two or three key issues that you see that come up with the most frequency? When was the last time someone went through a church discipline process? Like, was it 20 years ago? Was it never in this pastor's memory that they've ever done that? Um, was it last week? Do they do it all the time? And they got, do they currently have 10 families under church discipline? Like, ask about it. Can you give me an example of where this process was used? What was the process? What was the outcome? Can you give me an example of a time when restoration happened? Because that's really the goal of church discipline is restoration. It is repentance. Like, can you give me an example of how that's worked out? Many churches these days do not even practice church discipline. And it, it, it has to strike that balance between passivity and just hoping people will change, something magical will happen, um, you know, and the other end of the process is that our spectrum is that we got a lot of people under church discipline, we're disciplining people all the time, and we're super quick about it. Like, we, we've got to strike something where we're allowing people to have space to change and work through their sins, but also having accountability and all of that. But when you have people in leadership, this is a really critical point as to why this matters. When you have people in leadership, elders, worship leaders, pastors, staff, living in habitual, unrepentant sin without any sort of church discipline process, that is not going to be a spiritually healthy church. It's just not. 
And I hear about this all the time, like this open secret that such and such worship person on the worship team is fornicating with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. Everybody knows that it's just sort of an open secret, but nothing happens. Okay. So, you know, this includes people living together, having sex out of marriage and whatever form that is, you know, what is the process? I think you're going to be able to tell quite a lot on the specificity or the vagueness of the pastor's answer. So listen for how specific their answers are, because you might need that someday. And I'm going to talk about that in the third part of the talk here. But if this sounds a little bit like an interview, that's because it kind of is. Um, and again, this is because your end goal is that you don't want to just come and sit in a church. You want to serve in a church. You want to give to a church. You want to be invested with your family that this is going to be your spiritual family. So, you know, we we want to have the harder conversations to know what we're aligning with up front. So you can keep it friendly. Definitely keep it friendly. Don't make it like a big inquisition. You got a big spotlight on the person and all of that. And affirm to the pastor, you think church life is important. This matters to you. It is a priority for you and your family. You want to be there, okay? So you want to make sure that it's going to be a good fit for them and for you. So hopefully that helps you out. My friend Jeremy Bannister is on the stream. Thank you, Jeremy, for jumping on. He says, I believe a good question to ask would be asking the leadership, how are disciples made in this church? Yeah, it's very good. If they can answer that question, it will give you a lot of information. Now, Jeremy's a a pastor, he's a veteran. So that's a great question. Yep. And if you've never interviewed your pastor in general about these questions, even if you've been going there a while, I highly recommend that you do it. In all my classes, almost all my classes, I have people interview their pastor about a particular subject. And by and large, people always talk about like how much they learn from that. And it created communication between them and their pastor. And in many cases, it created to increase service for that person. So I highly recommend, even if you've never had this kind of conversation before with your pastor, go do it. Let them get to know you. Um, okay. And now for what I think is the most important thing to look for in a church. This answer might surprise you. It's not the sermons. It's not the worship. Here it is. It is the character quality of the elder team. I know that's probably not the answer you were expecting, but I think the quality of the character of the elder team at the, the leadership at the top level, that is what trickles down into the entire church culture. And if that at the top level isn't healthy, it will impact everything else. I asked Bob to to pull up the passage from First Timothy chapter three that gives us the criteria for an elder team. And I'm gonna have him put it up on the screen. Thank you, Bob. St. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled 
respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. These are the Lord's requirements for good leadership in his household, in his spiritual household. And this is this is what is required. So somebody was asking on the stream earlier, well, why didn't you have the criteria of, of no women preachers? Well, I was getting to it. All right, is in this part of the teaching. One of the criteria here in 1 Timothy is being a husband of one wife. I hold to a view of elders, um, of male eldership. And so that would be a criteria that I would look on on the church website. Okay, who's your elder team? Who, who are you um, including in that leadership? Now, some people would have differences with that. I'm giving you my best understanding of the scriptures. But it needs to be somebody who is sober-minded, self-controlled. In other words, they're not a hothead. They're not prideful. They're not arrogant. They don't have substance abuse problems, okay? They are able to teach. Being able to teach implies that you're also able to discern sound doctrine. He must not be a recent convert. He can't be new in the faith, okay? So do here's some questions to ask. Is Do your elders adhere to sound doctrine in a robust way? Do, is there consistent sound doctrine from the pulpit? And if the church starts allowing or normalizing unbiblical practices without boundaries or church discipline, um, it's, it, you know, that that's a red flag. That's time for a harder conversation with your leadership team. That might be something to, to start thinking about, you know, we need to make a transition. Uh, I want to read, um, you know, a little bit more about the importance of character in the elder team. Um, I'm going to have Bob put up first Timothy chapter six here, a few verses from there. Uh, Paul says later in Timothy, he says, if anyone teaches different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accordance with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. So here's this, this important, I, I hate the word balance, but it's you've got to have two things. You've got to be able to defend sound doctrine and be able to differentiate it from unsound doctrine, okay? So when it says it, that, that he must not disagree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a technical term for a body of beliefs that this person is going to defend this body of belief. So when it talks back in chapter three about being able to teach, what it's talking about is being able to teach sound doctrine, to defend this body of beliefs. But if it, there's so many elders that I see that get put on the elder team because they're nice people, they're business owners, maybe they have a lot of money or influence in the community, these are not 
biblical criteria. Okay. And I hope to do a podcast very soon and teaching with my friend, Jeremy Bannister about qualified elders. I think that's a whole conversation right now. I'm just giving you the snapshot because I think my theory is that this is why we have so many unhealthy churches is we have unhealthy churches because we do not have good leadership. We do not have biblical leadership. Some, sometimes some churches get, get inundated with bully, bully pastors. Okay. Um, and there's a, there's no authentic accountability. There's not a plurality of leadership. When the church becomes built around one central personality with one person who's just such a great communicator, they're almost untouchable in the leadership. That That's not going to work. That's not going to be a place of long-lasting health and a, a place of emotional maturity. If, if the senior pastor which I don't even like the idea of a senior pastor, but I understand the practicality of it. But to me, the, the I'm more for a plurality of leadership. And But if there is a senior pastor and he has the final say, you know, no questions allowed, and you hear rhetoric like, don't touch the Lord's anointed. And when you come to bring reasonable concerns or just even asking a question and you're met with like, you know, we don't kind of allow those conversations or even asking questions is seen as divisive, or you might hear phrases like, well, this is an honor culture. And, and the senior leadership, the senior pastor, he sets the agenda. He, he determines the vision of the church. No questions allowed. These are signs that are profoundly unhealthy. And, and this, this is not God's way. Okay. So when, when objections come about leadership in God's household, it says in first Timothy chapter five, Paul gives some very specific statements. He says this in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. This is, this is very important. The elders are not above questions. They are not above church discipline. Now, we need verified evidence of something that's happening. We don't we don't also just punish leaders on hearsay, but we need to allow uh, and build a culture where questions are allowed, where hard conversations are allowed, okay? And if those conversations happen and there is kind of this shaming or, you know, we don't allow that and don't touch the Lord's anointing. That's when you have to start thinking about like this, this isn't healthy. That's a very bad sign. And again, this is my theory about this is a healthy church starts at the top. And if you have solid leaders at the top, then that character quality, those qualities that Paul lists will have a trickle down effect in the church as a whole. But if there isn't genuine accountability, if you've got bully pastors, if you've got people in leadership with open sins that nobody rebukes, this is not this is not the way. Now here's why this matters. Someday you in your life you are going to be in a crisis. A crisis is coming. 
if it, you're not already in it right now, a crisis is coming. You need to know what kind of counsel these people are going to give you when your life is in a crisis. Will they have time to meet with you? If your pastor, prospective pastor won't meet with you at the beginning of the relationship, I'm very skeptical he's going to show up later when you're in a crisis. Is he going to meet with you? Will he pray with you? Will he walk through this hard season with you? Even if it takes time, even if it takes a year or two of being in the crisis, or does he just outsource everything to, to, to outside counselors? Someday, your life, your marriage, your kids, your health, something is going to happen where you are going to need that local church support. And if you don't take the time to know what kind of character it is that these, these leaders have, it's going to be too late when you're in the crisis and you realize these people will not show up for you. Teachers on the internet, this is why you need to know, teachers on the internet cannot be your church. We cannot be there to walk with you when your life gets turned upside down and you're in a marriage crisis or your child is deconstructing from the faith. Teachers on the internet cannot do that for you. Pastors, your, this is your biggest job. It's how you live with your people. Your biggest job is not preaching elegant sermons, although I love a good elegant sermon. Your biggest job is to give your people godly counsel when it really matters the most, to tell them the hard truths or to call them to repentance or to encourage them to forgive or to be with them as they are dying or to pray with them when they feel like there really are no physical answers you can give them that day, but to be present with them. This is your biggest calling, is shepherding. Jesus compares himself, himself to the great shepherd. You are their representative. You are his hands and feet. And, and I, I cannot emphasize this enough. My eyes have been open to this recently in the last year, year and a half, two years in my own journey is because someday your life will be in a crisis. You have to know who you can call. And it can't be your girlfriend. I mean, it can be, but it can't be only your girlfriend. You have to know that you have somebody to call that has godly counsel, is mature in the Lord, and can help you. That is the number one criteria that you need to look for in a, in a pastor. And I think that that is, is vital. I want to leave you with a couple of final thoughts here today as we wrap up. Whatever you do in the church issue is obey the Holy Spirit first. For some people, I know that the Holy Spirit tells some people to stay in their less than ideal situation because they have the opportunity and leadership to make a difference for others. And in some cases, you know, if that's what the Lord tells you to do, above all, do that. Obey the Lord. 
That's what you have to do first. For others, the Holy Spirit may prompt you to leave. Again, work to stay if you can, but sometimes seeking another situation that will be a better support for your family, especially in the partnership of discipling your children, make that a priority because really it's about discipling you first so that you can disciple your children. Um, and with that, I'm just going to ask again, make sure to share this teaching with a friend, with your pastor. I hope it was helpful. I do look forward to your feedback. Good afternoon and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.